You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. I'm Anthony Painter. I'm director of the Action and Research Centre here at the RSA. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to today's special lunchtime talk. I'm delighted to welcome today's speaker, Eric Brindelson. Eric is director of MIT's Initiative on the Digital Economy, um, Schussel Family Professor at the MIT Sloan School, uh, and Research Associate at the National Bureau of Economic uh, Research. That's almost as many job titles as George Osborne. Very impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, indeed. It's a modern gig economy. Uh, He is co-author with Andrew McAfee of The Second Machine Age, a book that has had widespread influence on the global uh, public and policy debate around how technological progress is transforming the way we live and work. Um, Eric joins us today to share insights from his new book, again co-written uh, with Andrew, uh, Machine Platform Crowd, um, Harnessing Our Digital Future. Um, it explores what Eric and Andy term the second phase of the second machine age. Um, in the book, they argue that this phase has an even greater sense of urgency um, as deep learning technologies are now demonstrating that they can do much more than just routine work. So, Um, Can we now replace fears that automation will erase jobs with hopes that advanced AI will actually improve um, rather than displace human work? Elsewhere, how do we ensure increasingly powerful platforms um, such as Google, Facebook, Amazon have a positive impact on the way we live our lives? And how can we harness the rise of crowd-based innovation to shape a better future for us all? These questions are right at the heart of much of our research work um, here at the RSA. Um, some of you may have seen that uh, the chief executive of the RSA, Matthew Taylor, launched his independent review um, into good work today uh, with the Prime Minister in this building. You missed the Prime Minister by half an hour, Eric, but you're probably catching up with her later, I don't know. Um, alongside our work on self-employment, the gig economy, our own future work and thinking, universal basic income and so much more um, besides. So it really is a particular pleasure and honour to welcome you here today, um, Eric, to share your latest analysis with us. Without further ado, um, please join me in welcoming Eric Brindelson. Well, well, thanks so much. And I'm delighted to be here and honoured to, uh, to have a chance to come to the uh, Royal Society of Arts, uh, Manufacturing and Commerce, which uh, has been around for, for a, a long time. Uh, and, uh, and what an honor that uh, the Prime Minister was here this morning. So it's a, it's a high bar you've set for me to uh, try to keep up. Um, I've enjoyed very much the chance uh, to, uh, in working on this book and, and the research before, to go around uh, visiting lots and lots of companies and, and learning what's happening. Um, things are changing very rapidly. And I'm looking forward, actually, to having the conversation today uh, with all of you and hearing what some of the things, the issues and topics that are on your mind that are concerning you. Uh, when we worked on the book, Andy and I, um, one of the things we realized was that there's just a a lot of chaos out there in terms of uh, companies seemingly coming out of nowhere and becoming multi-billion dollar companies. Other very successful companies, some of them centuries old, um, being overturned and going bankrupt. And it seems at times there's no rhyme or reason, but by visiting some of the leading edge companies, we could uh, evoke that, uh, that saying from William Gibson that the future is already here but it's just not evenly distributed yet. So we tried to identify bits and pieces of the future and, and describe the companies that were leading and, and talk about how they were doing what they were doing and, and describe those anecdotes in the book. Um, but also more fundamentally, link that to some underlying theory and principles that made sense of this. Because it turned out that, uh, for instance, economics could be a very good 
guide to making sense of the seeming chaos out there. Um, there are principles in all three categories, in machines, platforms, and crowds, that uh, organize what's happening and I think provide some guidance to how to be successful going forward uh, as individuals, as companies, and as society. So the real bottleneck these days is not so much the technology. The technology is actually uh, evolving very rapidly. It's moving quite quickly. Uh, we live in kind of strange times when you think about it. Um, cars are beginning to learn how to drive themselves. Uh, if you walk down the street and, and you see somebody you know, talking on one of these little devices, uh, it's a good chance they're not even talking to another human. They're talking to the machine and expecting it to answer some of their questions back to them. And, and they're not nutty. They're actually machines. Sometimes they're, can I answer those questions. So that's, that's kind of a new episode in human history. What is the bottleneck, however, is figuring out how to take advantage of these technologies uh, because it's not enough to simply buy the technology or, or hire some data scientists. Uh, we found that to really be successful, you have to rethink your business processes. You have to rethink the organization of the company. Sometimes you have to rethink the entire industry structure. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, but let me start by um, giving a little background on how this has happened before. This is not the first time we've had a technological revolution. Um, uh, over 100 years ago, factories were adopting a, an amazing new technology called electricity. And if you look at how they adopted it, it's quite striking um, what happened. Before electricity was used in factories, they looked a lot like this. We visited a number of these factories. And uh, they were typically multi-story factories. And in the middle of them, they had a really big steam engine or water wheel that powered all the equipment and machinery through the factory. Um, steam engines need to be big to get the right thermodynamics. You can't make them really small. And... Um, so to, to power them, you put the big steam engine in the middle, and then you hooked up pulleys and crankshafts to distribute the power, and the wheels would spin, and there'd be bits of machinery all around. Of course, if you make the, the crankshaft too long, the, the torsion would break it. So you had to have the equipment in fairly close to the steam engine. They put the equipment around in a radius close to the steam engine, and, and they were smart enough to realize, hey, if we do it in three dimensions, we can have, keep that radius short and have them up above and below with the pulleys and, and crankshafts. So the factories like this were built over and over, and then they started introducing electricity, this wondrous new technology. And what did the factories that introduced electricity look like? Well, they looked exactly like this at first, and that's because they simply took out the steam engine, literally, and they went and got the biggest electric motor they could find, and they put it right back in the middle and had the same pulleys and crankshafts and got back in business. Was that a big improvement in productivity? No, not really. It didn't change things very fundamentally. Fair enough. They were retrofitting factories. Then they started building entirely new factories from scratch. What did they look like? Mm, just like this. <laughs> and the reason was that the, the architects and the engineers really weren't very creative. They would get out the old blueprint of what a factory is supposed to look like. They'd get out their uh, pen, make a big X through the uh, steam engine, right? put electric motor here instead. And then they hand it off to the uh, builders and say, my work is done. Go, go build your factory. Um, this continued for 5, 10, 20 years. It took about 30 years until you started finally seeing a new kind of factory. And the historian Paul David has documented this in great detail, teaching at, at Oxford and Stanford University. Um, 
And the new factories looked a little bit more like this. Um, they were single-story factories spread out. And uh, instead of having one big power source in the middle, every separate piece of equipment had its own electric motor. Some of them were bigger. Some of them were smaller. Electrical motors are very scalable. And you could distribute the power through wires, which meant you could pretty much put it anywhere you wanted. This freed up designers. And for the first time, they started realizing, hey, we can set up the equipment not based on what needs the most power, but based on some other principle. How about the workflow of materials? How about setting up assembly lines? We'll have things go through sequences and have stations, each with its own separate motor. Once they started doing that, productivity soared. It doubled and tripled in these factories. And Paul David's research shows how important it was not simply to implement this new technology of electricity, but to fundamentally rethink how you did production. Well, the lesson is clear that today we are making many of the same mistakes. Companies are taking these wondrous technologies but not really rethinking how they organize themselves, what their business models are, how they connect to customers, how they organize work. And our mission in this book and really in our research program at the Initiative on the Digital Economy at MIT is to help invent and discover and recognize and disseminate these new principles of business organization um, and hopefully shorten that time frame so it won't be 30 years, but it can be uh, 5, 10 years or less. And to help organize how we're going to talk about this, we're going to talk about these three principles of machine, platform, and crowd, or more specifically about three great rebalancings between mind and machine, product and platform, and core and crowd. So uh, in each case, what we're seeing is the first word here isn't going away, but it's becoming relatively less important compared to the second one. So we're seeing a rebalancing of decision-making from human minds to more and more using machines to help or even take over that decision-making. A shift in business organization from being totally product-focused to leveraging platforms. Today, five out of the five most valuable companies on the planet are essentially platform companies that have created ecosystems that um, make their uh, products more valuable. And finally, something that I think is the least well understood is shifting from the core, the center of the organization where there's a set of experts that know all the, everything that needs to be known, to tapping into the wisdom of the crowds, the millions and now billions of brains out there that are connected to a digital network for the first time and able to not simply tap into the knowledge of everyone else, but also contribute to it. And the best organizations are those that have found ways to leverage this wisdom of the crowds and the digital network in creative new ways. So I'm going to talk about each of these three rebalancings, but let me start off by the, with talking about the mind and machine rebalancing. And one of the big triggers for this has been the digitization of almost everything. We have uh, an explosion of digital data, terabytes, exabytes, petabytes of data that um, is now available because so much of our world is instrumented, our communications, our um, photography, and uh, the Internet of Things. This digital data is the lifeblood for better decision-making. It feeds into machine decision-making. It feeds into a new mindset called 
data-driven decision-making. Um, and our research has found that this data-driven decision-making approach is dramatically more productive. Uh, for instance, in a, in a survey of 30,000 plants that we looked at, uh, a, a representative group, almost a, a very large number of them, we found that the number of companies that qualified as what we call data-driven decision-makers, DDD, had increased threefold over a five-year period according to our criteria. So it's really spreading quite rapidly as opposed to making decisions mainly just based on intuition and judgment and their own uh, uh, opinions. And the ones who have switched to our criteria, we have a kind of a checklist for what makes you a data-driven decision-maker, were about 4% more productive. They're also about 6% more profitable, which explains why so many companies are shifting in that direction. And this is a transition from uh, a traditional way of decision-making, sort of where you gather around a table and you all debate things and then you go with, uh, with a hippo. Anyone heard that expression? The hippo is the, the highest paid person's opinion. Uh, and, uh, and that's a technique that's worked for centuries, um, but now we can, we can rely on these more data-driven approaches. But it goes beyond simply having data as an input. Increasingly, um, we're seeing artificial intelligence help not just aid decisions, but even make some of the decisions for us. And particularly the subcategory of machine learning, and within that, particularly the sub subcategory of deep learning, has really taken off just in about the past five years or so. It's, it's a revolution that's driving a number of things, uh, deep learning and relatedly reinforcement learning. And a lot of the breakthroughs have been done right here in London uh, by uh, Deep, uh, DeepMind, Google's DeepMind subsidiary um, over at King's Cross. I've visited them a number of times. Let me give you a little example uh, of how this can work. So um, many of you have probably played video games at some point. Uh, uh, they thought this was a good, DeepMind thought this was a good test case to see if you could have a machine learn on its own. So they took some, uh, a few dozen Atari video games and they said, we're not going to tell the machine how to play them. We're not going to give it the rules or explain anything. We're just going to give it the raw pixels, the little dots on the screen as input. And we're going to say, here's a controller. You can move it around, do whatever you want with it. And the third piece of information we're going to give you is the score. You figure out everything else. You have to figure out what is a ball, what is a paddle, or whether they even exist, what's a space invader. And uh, if you play the video here, um, we can see that at first it wasn't very good. It just sort of randomly moved around the controller. Sometimes it would be successful, sometimes not, not super good. But every time it did something successful, it got feedback and said, oh, I should try to do more of whatever I just did. And this is called reinforcement learning. And gradually, after a few hundred games, 300 games, it started playing pretty well, like, but like as well as a, a teenage boy or girl, uh, mostly hitting it sort of roughly human-level performance. And then they decided, hey, just, just keep, let's keep it running, see if it can learn more and more. And after 500 games, it started doing something that they didn't know was possible. It figured out this new strategy of just sending the ball around to the back, and then it didn't even have to do anything. And uh, I talked to the guys at DeepMind and said, well, they, none of the programmers knew that that was a good strategy. This is something that the machine figured out on its own from exploring the space and learning. So this reinforcement learning system not only learned how to play at human level, but ultimately figured out new strategies that none of the people had uh, seen. And it did this quite, quite rapidly. 500 games, you know, it's, that's pretty fast. Uh, it, and it did it not only for this game, it's called Breakout, for those of you who played it, um, but it did it with Space Invaders and dozens of other games. It was written up in an article in, uh, in Science. Um, 
all using the same basic algorithm. It's almost like if you had a, a newborn baby born, didn't know anything about the world, and then by the end of the first day, it was beating the, uh, the doctors in the hospital at uh, different uh, video games uh, from learning about the environment. Really quite impressive performance. But what I think is, is uh, striking is it's not just something you could do with video games. You can take this technique, reinforcement learning and deep learning, and apply it to other kinds of data. For instance, uh, the same team at Google said, at Google DeepMind said, hey, you know, a data center, you can think of that kind of like a video game, a little kind of a scary one, but it's got inputs and scores. The inputs is all the gauges in the data center that record how much energy usage is being used by the air conditioners and devices throughout the thing. Uh, the score is how efficient it is. The controller is adjusting the switches. Let's take all that data, we'll feed it to a big reinforcement learning system, and we'll tell it, hey, see if you can do better. So they gave this proposal to the top executives at uh, Google, and the guys at Google were like, well, you know, look, we already have a lot of really smart PhDs who have been working on optimizing the data center. You are not going to be able to squeeze any more blood out of that stone. It's already been fully optimized. And uh, the DeepMind guys said, well, well, let us try. Who knows what will happen? So I think you know where the story is going to go. <laughs> um, they trained it, and once they turned on the machine learning system, the uh, energy usage went way down. It was about 15% more efficient overall, 40% on the air conditioning usage. Uh, dramatic improvement. And then when they turned it back off and said, hey, you humans take it over again, it went back to the old, old level of performance. And I want to stress, this is not something that Google hadn't already been thinking a lot about. They've been spending years with their, some of the smartest people on the planet trying to optimize it just to get it to this level. So the machine was doing a lot better than you know, teenage boys on, uh, on video games. It was really working on something quite important. And data centers, these are multi-billion dollar operations. This is a really expensive part of uh, Google's operations. So you can see that this is actually a quite a vi uh, valuable application of machine learning. With a little bit of creativity, you can imagine, hey, there's lots of other data centers around the planet, not just at Google. We could apply it to all of them. And just a tiny bit more imagination, hold it. What about other factories? What about other continuous flow processes in the steel industry and in many other industries? Maybe we could do something similar there. This is, uh, this is big news that we are able to do. This is, this, is, this is really quite recent as well. And it's not just in optimizing uh, different processes like this. I think there are three big categories that used to be almost the exclusive domain of humans that are now areas where machines can do a lot more. One is in our, our uh, sensory areas, like vision and language. Another is interacting with the physical world. And the third is in problem solving. So let's take a look at vision, something that we all think we're pretty good at. So here are some pictures of uh, what, muffins or uh, puppies. <laughs> um, so you know, afterwards, please be careful what you reach for on that tray there before you pop it in the mouth. Um, but um, we're you know, reasonably good at, at distinguishing things, and there's lots of objects that we can look at that kind of look similar, but if you're with a little bit of care, you can, you can know which is which. Uh, machines used to not be so good at it. Um, as recently as 2010, on a big database called ImageNet of images, they made about a 30% error rate. Um, and it wasn't improving a whole lot until you can see there's this inflection point where it suddenly started getting a lot better. Well, that's when these deep learning algorithms started being used. They started adopting them, and they're very powerful networks, loosely based on the human brain. 
And today, they're down less than 5% error rate on ImageNet. Um, and by comparison, humans are a little bit worse than that. So humans aren't perfect. The machines are actually slightly better. That's a really important threshold. It's not just a difference in degree. It becomes a difference in kind. It's like if you raise the temperature of water up to the boiling point, whether that's 212 or 100 degrees, whatever you want to call it, um, um, at some point, it's a, it's a phase change. And when you have machines become a better uh, solution for certain kinds of problems, that means that entrepreneurs and managers are going to be looking at the different ways of solving the problem, and they're going to say, oh, now we have a new way of solving this problem that is better than before. Still in early days, but we're beginning to see this happen. And I think some of you have maybe even gotten some opportunities to see this in action. If you use Facebook, you may notice that machines are, are recognizing your friends' faces and offering to label them for you, for instance. Similar things are happening in voice recognition. The error rate from, went from 8.5% down to 4.9%. Pretty striking. But what's even more striking is this is not over the past 10 years. This is over the past 10 months or so, 12 months. So just the past year, we've had a astonishing improvement in the performance. We, are, all of us in this room, are living through a remarkable time in human history when machines are reaching human levels of performance. Now, you can apply this to lots of different things. You know, it's still kind of a little clumsy, and I do sometimes uh, dictate it. it. Actually, there was some research done that's about three times faster now to dictate your text rather than type it in a set of side-by-side -side comparisons. Um, it's also used in medical areas. The same techniques that are used to, say, recognize your friends on Facebook um, can also be used to look at medical images. And if you compare, hey, here are some cancer cells, here are some that don't have cancer, let's see if uh, the machine can start picking out the differences. The machines have gotten remarkably good at that. There was an article in, in Science where um, uh, the machines picked out the 12 key markers that human pathologists have been trained in medical school after years, decades even, of, uh, of uh, schooling, they can learn what are the key markers to look for. But as with the, the video game, the machine not only identified the ones that the humans knew about, they kept it running to learn more and more, and eventually identified seven additional markers that the humans hadn't previously identified. So it's getting to be, in some ways, better. And you've, of course, heard about the self-driving cars. Uh, there are some, I believe, now in, in coming to London, in, in Boston, uh, these Newtonomy cars are driving around by the seaport district in a constrained area. They don't drive everywhere in the city, but there's a certain part of the city. Singapore as well. Pittsburgh is, is having them. So soon, I think more and more of us will get a chance to ride them. Uh, Andy McAfee and I were lucky enough to be able to ride around them uh, uh, out in the Google campus. Um, they're working in factories like this Baxter uh, robot that works for the equivalent of about $4 an hour doing simple tasks that many humans have, have been doing. Uh, they're working at some much more high-paid jobs. We talked to the guys at J.P. Morgan, and uh, they see machine learning taking over many of the tasks there as well. So I could talk more about that, but I also want to touch on the other categories. Let me jump to the core and the crowd next and how that's reshaping factories. And uh, as a business school professor, one of the things that uh, we hear over and over it's something that kind of almost makes me feel like I'm working with a set of personal trainers because they keep saying, you have to work on your core. The core is the key. Work on your core. Um, and that's the advice that for about 30 years, uh, 
professors and consultants have been giving to CEOs and managers focus on that core competence of the corporation. And it's not that this is wrong, but it's that we have a new rebalancing now to focus a lot more on the crowd. And uh, Kareem Lakhani, who is a, a student of, uh, up at MIT, and then he kind of uh, uh, lost the gospel and went up the river to Harvard Business School, where he's a professor now. Um, but we still, we still respect him quite a bit. He does some great research. And uh, he described uh, a just fascinating set of studies that we describe in the book um, about how the crowd can really improve a lot of different categories of, of decision-making. Uh, let me give you one in particular. Um, here's data about sequencing the genome of white blood cells. So it turns out white blood cells are kind of complicated. They have to adapt to fight invaders. And uh, that means they, uh, the genomes it can get very complicated. You'd like to try to sequence them. And so a team at the National Institute of Health uh, had a, uh, a system that could sequence them with about 70% accuracy, and it took a little over 10,000 seconds to do that sequencing. And they were like, well, you know, this is really important. Let's see if we can do it faster. So they, they contacted some other folks over at uh, uh, Harvard Medical School, and they, they improved it a bit. They actually got a little bit faster, a little bit higher accuracy, but arguably that's still a big part of the core, the, the people at Harvard Business School. That's when... Kareem came in. He said, let's run a contest. We're going to run a contest at Topcoder, and we'll see if there's people out there that aren't part of this core medical establishment that maybe can do better. So he, he described what needed to be done. He put the data out there and said, okay, wherever you are, you can be in London, in Switzerland, in Botswana, Panama, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. See if you can come up with a better solution. And this is what they found remarkable improvements in not only uh, accuracy, but look at the time improvement. Some of them were some of the best performers, like this guy up here. Look at that, 80% improvement and just barely 10 seconds. 10 seconds. This is a log scale. So phenomenal improvement, just stunning. Um, of course, there are lots of other ones that just weren't so good. But if you look at these best ones, uh, they were a big improvement. And what's really interesting was not only the massive improvement, but where these guys came from. They were students. Uh, they were mechanical engineers. They were crystallographers. Uh, they were oil and gas drilling experts. They came from all this diversity of different perspectives. And that actually is a big part of why they were successful, is they provide new techniques, new ways of doing this that no one in the core had been thinking of before. A big part of the value of going to the crowd instead of the core isn't just that you get more eyeballs working on this, more brains looking at it, but you get people with more diversity, people who are experts in some other category. And maybe this problem is very hard to solve using the traditional techniques, but someone else will look at that and say, oh, that's a very simple crystallography problem. All we have to do is apply some techniques I've been working on for many years. The core wouldn't even know that that was an option. And so um, we talked to Kareem and said, hey, this is absolutely amazing. Is this the most stunning thing you've ever seen? And he said, no, it's about average. What? He said, yeah, when we set up contests, if I don't get an order of magnitude improvement or something, I think I did something wrong. I must not have set up the contest right. Because usually when I set up one of these contests, there are people out there who have a very different perspective and can massively improve it. And so not surprisingly, more and more people are turning to this as a way to solve certain kinds of problems, as well as you can define well. So this is a part of a big shift from the, the core to the crowd. It's not only contests like this. There are things like... Uh, Top coder, there are things like Kaggle. Uh, a lot of you have used Wikipedia, which has outperformed Britannica as the encyclopedia that, uh, that is at the core. Um, 
and it's, uh, it's something that more companies are, are looking at as an option. Finally, let me talk a little bit about shifting from products to platforms. And uh, let's look at three different industries, the uh, mobile phone market, uh, the transportation market, and the fitness market. And you might think, well, those are three totally different industries. I mean, what could be more different about them? And if you're a, a business school professor, you don't have time to write a final question for your class, a really quick and easy, kind of lazy way of uh, getting a question. So you just pick three random industries and you say, okay, students, uh, compare and contrast these industries, and then you're done. So let's compare and contrast them. <laughs> well, when I look at these, I might think, well, okay, they're totally different. And if some student said, oh, yeah, no, they're more or the same because they have, like, buyers and sellers, I'd say, oh, come on, please. That is such a lame answer, you know, buyers and sellers. That, that's, and it's not even, it's not even very, very insightful. It doesn't really tell you anything about it. But, but I would be wrong because, actually, these industries do have a lot in common, and it does have to do with the buyers and sellers relate to each other. And I'm not the only one who got this wrong. Uh, no one other than maybe one of the greatest business minds of, of uh, recent uh, history, Steve Jobs also got this wrong, and we write about this in the book. Um, he nearly blew it when he came out with the most successful uh, system in recent history, the iPhone platform. Um, he actually didn't get that this was an opportunity to create a very, very powerful platform, one of the reasons it's the most valuable company on the, the planet. He was really focused on the product and making a really, really beautiful product. And when they, the iPhone first came out, he refused to let other people write applications for it. And his uh, board of directors, his staff begged him, said, please, we've got to like, open up the system. And Steve said, no, 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 we need complete control. It's all about the product. Fortunately for Apple and really for all of us, he eventually changed his mind. About a year later, almost exactly nine years ago, uh, he opened up the iPhone and let outside developers write applications for it. Very quickly, uh, about 500 people, 500 applications came out, and within three days, they had 10 million downloads of those applications. And so um, this, of course, created an amazing ecosystem. And the, really, a big part of the value, arguably most of the value you get from these, is all the different applications that you build on. And now, Apple recognizes that their job is to be an orchestrator of that platform to manage the ecosystem, encourage people to develop amazing apps, things that they couldn't have thought of. And it's been a very valuable part of their strategy, and for that matter, a lot of other companies. Now, um, you, you might, um, yeah, and so this is this, this platform approach that's very different. Now, you might think, okay, that, that's great. And am I overstating this? Am I sort of claiming that Apple is capturing all of the profits now? No. I mean, in fairness, it's not true that Apple is capturing all of the profits. Apple is capturing more than all of the profits. <laughs> in a recent quarter, they had 103% of the profits. Samsung had another 1% or so. And all the other uh, makers of, of mobile phone, phone devices actually had losses, negative profits. So it's been a big part of, of the success in that. Now, there are a lot of other platforms that have taken off. Um, Uber is a great example. Usually, people talk about uh, their great corporate culture as an example uh, to cover up sort of some mediocre 
financial results. In the case of the Uber, it's the other way around. <laughs> I don't know how often that happens. They, they're talking about their great financials to cover up a really crappy corporate culture that led to their CEO and a lot of other, most of the other senior executives leaving. But it, to me, it underscores that these platforms are so powerful they can survive even some atrocious mistakes in culture and management. You know, maybe not forever. I hope, you know, hopefully they'll fix things over there. But it gives you a sense of the power of if you get the economics right, if you get the technology right, you get a lot of momentum going uh, in a positive direction. It's growing like a weed. And it's not just these big companies. I don't know, if, is ClassPass used in London? Anybody know about ClassPass? So this has gotten to be very popular in the United States. And it's a platform for, of all things, the fitness industry. So another industry. And in the fitness industry, um, how can you use a digital platform? It doesn't seem like a real good fit. You know, people in, in gyms, you know, sweating and doing Pilates and, and yoga and stuff. Well, it turns out that um, in a typical fitness class, there's a few empty seats. They don't actually fully book it. And there are people who maybe would want to go to that. And so there's an opportunity to match those two together. And ClassPass has set up a platform that works with fitness centers all across different cities. And you can actually move them from one, go from one city to the other and match it up with people who might be interested in taking a class. And those empty seats in that yoga class, how much revenue is the uh, company making from those as they stay empty? Well, zero. And ClassPass says, hey, we can do better than zero. It's a good principle in, from uh, business school theory that, zero, that positive numbers are better than zero numbers for revenue. And uh, so they've been able to convince a lot of uh, fitness studios to join the platform, and then they get people to join on the other side. And this two-sided network, just like riders and drivers in Uber or like app developers and users in, uh, in the uh, iPhone ecosystem, is a platform that's creating more and more value. And you get this flywheel effect of positive reinforcement as more people join each side, and the platform becomes more and more valuable. So there are a set of advantages to this, and I'll, I'll wrap this up, and we can have a, a conversation. Uh, one is what economists call network effects. The bigger the network is, the more value it is, and, or sometimes you call it demand-side economies of scale. Uh, these companies all seem to be successful when they have obsessive control over the user experience and really make that a positive uh, area. But also on the other side, the ecosystem. Con control the ecosystem uh, and manage that to make sure there's quality there. And uh, data and machines is a big part of this. It's that we now have this network that we can connect people together and improve matching, pricing, personalization, and I think most importantly, trust. Almost all these systems have, for instance, a reputation system that tracks who's doing well and who isn't. Um, I find that, for instance, the, the ride-sharing industry in the United States um, has led to cleaner cars, more on-time arrival, better service than we had previously when there wasn't these trust-based algorithms. So in conclusion, our book is about th three big areas of new kinds of advice. First off, that this division of labor that we've long had between minds and machines is changing quite rapidly. And it's changing towards using machines more for decision-making, both data-driven decision-making and artificial intelligence. Not enough companies are shifting that way. And a good piece of advice is think about opportunities to go in that direction. It doesn't mean that all decisions should be made by machines. And that would be, that would be ridiculous. But there are more and more opportunities than there were before. Secondly, the crowd, well, to say it conservatively, is often more capable. But I'm beginning to think a better word there would be usually more capable. 
There are so many opportunities there, and, and many of them are just breathtaking. That is way underutilized. And last but not least, um, we see value creation moving from products to platforms and value capture moving from products to platforms, which is why these companies, the five most valuable companies on the planet, have figured out ways of leveraging platforms. And by the way, those companies, if you're wondering who they are, Apple, Alphabet, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Facebook. So let me leave it there. We'll have um, some questions, but uh, I look forward to hearing what all of you have to think about it. And the book describes this information in more detail. Thanks very much. I think you can see from uh, Eric's presentation there what a good blend of uh, analysis and case material the, 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 the book is. Um, Eric, I kind of want to go back to the beginning of your talk, actually, and sure. the story of electricity, because... To my observation, and you, you outlined what I, th I think now is undeniably a technological revolution. You know, the machines are doing things that we couldn't have imagined that they would do. Um, like magic, yeah. yeah, exactly. But what we're not seeing, I mean, and it's all inspiring but at the same time, in terms of the economic impacts, it's kind of disappointing, yes. right? And, and this, is, this is interesting. We've got the technological revolution, but we haven't got an accompanying yeah. economic revolution. And you, you went into that sort of in the story of electricity and how it's adapted to the factory um, and so on. And the question is, I mean, we're looking at sort of social, cultural, institutional barriers here, ultimately, yes. aren't we? And the ability to sort of galvanise capital in a way that's cost-effective and value-creating in order to adopt the technologies that we have. I mean, I think... McKinsey have done a recent survey which found you know, 20% of available technologies have actually been implemented in available products and services. So the question is, how do we transform this technological revolution into an economic revolution, and should we, I guess? Well, I think that is the question. It's what I've devoted my research career to. And so um, I, at first I've got to say, I, I sort of was naively puzzled that these amazing technologies didn't instantly lead to a huge productivity research. Yeah. And then I remembered my own research and that of Paul Davids and others, which talks about these decades it takes to implement it. You see, it's really easy to see this amazing technology. It's a lot harder to see the, the dozens, hundreds, thousands of small complementary innovations that have to be done to change your offices, to change your financial system, to change retailing, to change the factories. And those require a lot of hard work, a lot of trial and error. People get them wrong. And sometimes if you get them close to right but not quite right, it's a disaster. And so um, what we are doing with the book, what we're doing with the research agenda, is try to identify what works, what doesn't work, and perhaps more importantly, those underlying principles to speed up the change. But, but some of the work I've done suggests that as much as 90% of the cost, time, effort, and ultimately benefit from these new technologies is in the complementary organizational and human capital investments rather than the, the technology per se. Is there anything as a society we should look to do to accelerate that process, or is it just about the incrementalism of, of efficient businesses working out and finding a path? Well, it's very tempting to say the solution is to buy my book. Uh, I'll resist <laughs> saying that. Um, well, it's part of the solution. I, I, think, no, I, I think that, that um, yes, there, there's a whole sw sw set of things. Uh, there's not, I think, a silver bullet that if we just flip this and Theresa May came back in the room, you know, she could, she could solve it. But it, it, it starts with, um, I think, devoting more time and energy to understanding those business processes that work and that don't work, to having a more educated workforce that is more adaptable and can discover them on their own. Because it's not just something that Steve Jobs or whoever has to see at the top of the organization. It's all throughout the organization. And it's people outside the organization that have to adapt. We need a better infrastructure 
to disseminate and improve these. We need a way of spreading the information. But this is the big bottleneck. It's not as visible as the shiny objects that we buy, but ultimately it's far more important. And the successful societies, the successful economies, are the ones that understand this and invest in that sort of softer capital of culture, education, uh, entrepreneurship, flexibility. And I mean, another observation looking at the last sort of 30 or 40 years is that the, I think you probably described it as the first wave of the second machine age, yes. um, which effectively is, is um, very efficient software systems being adapted to the organization in, in, in effect. We have secured, and you described the mechanism by which we secure enormous consumer surpluses from a lot of the changes that we're, that we're seeing. Right. But have we seen quite the same degree of reward um, for ourselves as workers um, or even as citizens, you know, and, and we're, we're, we're looking at a, you know, a technological environment where uh, a lot of work is taskified through actually the first wave of yeah. the second machine age. Yeah. We haven't even gone to machine learning yet. Um, and as citizens, of course, we're sort of marketed at, but what we haven't done is use this technology to provide ourselves with a greater voice. And have we missed an opportunity? For sure. And this is the other great paradox that took me a while to kind of to understand better. Um, and that is that even when we do get the productivity gains, there's no economic law that says everybody's going to benefit from it. Yeah. It's possible for some people, even a majority of people, to be left behind. Now, to be clear, that's not what happened for most of the past 200 years. It was a rising tide that lifted most boats. But it's a constant delay. With a delay, yeah. But ultimately, living standards went up, and, and the value of human labor went up. And I, the way I can say that with precision as an economist is that the amount people are willing to pay for an hour of human work just went up and up and up uh, over the past couple hundred years until about 20 years ago when it stagnated and uh, in the United States, Britain, and other countries. It, it hasn't gone up anymore, at least for the median worker. Um, Average GDP is up. We have more millionaires, more billionaires than ever before. Uh, in the United States, we're at record levels of GDP per person. I think that's true in Britain. I have to check, check the, the numbers. Um, but the person at the median, that's the 50th percentile, is essentially no better off. So this was a, a disappointing shock to me when I saw those numbers. And it actually led Andrew McAfee and I to start writing these books, uh, First Race Against the Machine and Second Machine Age. And what we call it was the great decoupling, that productivity could go up, but, but median income could could lag behind. And I think it's, it's, it's a big challenge for us as a society. Um, it's not, I wouldn't blame the technology, I would blame the way we are using the technology, because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a socially constructed decision. Well, it's even worse in the UK context in some respects because we've got a productivity stall in terms of growth yeah. and median wages have frozen as well. Um, and, and do you feel that underneath there, there are, there are incipient and unseen changes that will burst forth? Are we about to have a sort of you know, efficiency, innovation, revolution, a sort of Christensen I, I terms, so. and, you know, in, in, you know, the Internet of Things and new, new renewable technology yeah. and so on that could create enormous amounts of jobs as well as productivity? But will it come? So that's where I would bet. You know, it's always risky to predict the future, uh, but um, I spend so much time with a technologist, and they keep Andy and I are sometimes called techno optimists, and they say, "You guys are lowballing this. It's actually going to be bigger than what you guys are seeing." Uh, that's what the technologists say. But then I go to you know to Washington or Downing or or um, or um, to uh, Main Street in the United States, and people are like, "Well, we don't see it. It's it's not happening yet." Um, so I weigh those two points of view. I come down closer to the technologist. I think they're looking forward at what's in the pipeline. And most of the statistics, you know, by definition, are looking backwards in the rearview mirror. And, uh, and so I'm optimistic. Although uh, the you said two things about, about the, the surge in, in 
technology improvement, the pie getting bigger, I think we're in for seeing that. The second part of what you said, and broadly shared, that is certainly not automatic. We could easily see growing inequality. We could see more people being left behind. That is not a function of, of what's in the technology pipeline. That's a function of what we decide as a, in, a, as in terms of our political institutions, the way we organize our, our companies and factories, the kinds of skills we develop. Um, and for, to me, that's the challenge going forward is is working on that side of it. Yeah, and um, asset ownership and wealth is a critical component to that, not just the income distribution, um, of course. And you spend some time in the book um, analysing blockchain as a way of sort of distributing intellectual property in some respects and and, and ownership. And and that's, again, a a dog that hasn't hasn't barked. But I just wonder whether um, there is something in blockchain-style technology interface with new organizations that we can think about different ways to spread asset ownership and wealth that could create a better baseline of Mm -hmm. of egalitarianism and equality. Yeah. Well, blockchain is something we talk about, and it's part of the the crowd and the radical decentralization of things. And I'm very excited about this technology. It's based on public cryptography, and I remember back in the 90s when I first heard about it, I was like, this is just remarkable technology. It's taken a while for it to start being implemented in things like, like Bitcoin and the blockchain. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it's, you know, it's this first cryptocurrency, but what's more exciting about it is that you can take this distributed ledger and you can embed rules into it. Like um, we could have a contract and we could put it in the blockchain and instead of having that enforced by the courts or by you know, our boss or anybody else, it would just automatically be done by the algorithm and you know, we'd be done. So people have said, well, we could have radically decentralized organizations. And this is actually where I back off the hype a little bit. And I think, you know, that, yes, it's going to change a lot of things, but we ultimately still think there's going to be a role for humans and um, management and companies themselves. They're not going to disappear. And it comes to another part of economics, uh, incomplete contracts theory. One of my thesis advisors was Oliver Hart, who got the Nobel Prize last year. Um, And what he uh, convinced me, and I think most economists of, is that we can't fully describe every contingency in the world in advance. And so you try to write a piece of code in the blockchain or everywhere, there's always going to be parts of it that you didn't anticipate, and that's where human decision-making comes in. If everything was black and white like um, computer scientists wish it was, we could, we could just have machines decide, but, but we're far from that. So it's how you have an organization. That's, uh, that's what, organization is a great invention to deal with these unexpected contingencies, <laughs> asset ownership. Uh, as far as I can see, those are going to be around for a long, long time. Great. Okay, let's open it up to the audience. Uh, great talk, Eric, and I really like your book. Uh, I want to ask you a question about the infrastructure or the organization. You said that uh, in order to get the full benefits of uh, technology, we need to change how businesses organize, but we also may need to change how society organizes in terms of its uh, trading, its uh, social contracts, and so on. So where is the best discussion of this taking place? You said at the end, just a few minutes ago, this is the discussion we need to have. And I know you will say, well, read the book. But uh, you've all, you're, also involved, yeah? you're, also, you're also involved in other discussions, such as at the Asilima Conference for Beneficial AI. Right. So which ones would you, which, where, where, do you, where would you point people to? And if not uh, an organization, perhaps a country. Are there countries which are more attuned to this uh, social uh, contract change than others? 
if not Washington, then Beijing or Helsinki? Um, yes, uh, thanks for the talk, uh, Eric. Um, the RSN April published uh, its final report for the Inclusive Growth Commission, which I'd really commend to your attention. Um, and on that, um, my question is, um, is the tendency of platform economies to create big winners and monopolies an innate tendency, do you think? Or is there a kind of mode of platform which could be helped to evolve so that it could create a more inclusive model of growth? Thank you for the review. Oh, we didn't plan that question, by the way, so there we are. So this is an area I have pessimism. <laughs> um, uh, over the past few years, I am continually astounded on the technology side that I underestimated some of the events. In fairness, a lot of the technologists said that they were surprised. Uh, but um, when it comes to, to having a conversation about how we adapt as a society, I'm continually disappointed. I mean, now I almost feel like if we could just hold still and be stagnant in the United States, that would be better than what we're doing. <laughs> we're kind of going backwards. I think you know, people are saying, oh, we can get our coal mining jobs back. Or whatever. It's like, wait a minute, where, where is this coming that's from? Um, I regret so. Yeah, and, so, and that's a, uh, an almost, you know, it's a very damaging mindset to, to try to go backwards. Um, yeah. And uh, so it's hard to find places with some conversation. I have been in Helsinki and had some great conversations there. Uh, they're struggling with these issues. They're playing around with basic income. They're rethinking and reforming their education system. Beijing, in, in some ways, is very forward-looking on the technology side. In other ways, obviously, somewhat repressive. Um, there are conversations in the Bay Area of, of uh, the United States. And, um, and a lot of it's happening outside of, of the capitals of, of the, the Western countries, but um, we need to change the conversation. And I'm, I'm not a political scientist, but political scientists have told me that the way to do that uh, ultimately is not simply in, in democracies to get the elected leaders, Theresa May and company, to, to change mind, but all of us have to change our conversation because they respond to it. I've spoken to people in the U.S. Congress, very high up, and, and, uh, and they say, I get it, what you're saying makes a lot of sense, but I can't do that because my constituents have this other view. Yeah. You know, and for better or worse, that's the way democracy works. So we have to have a broader, it's slower, harder, but uh, people, I'm so glad all of you are here because you are part of changing that conversation and, and we're way behind the curve. Uh, on the other question, um, this, is, this is another thing I'm, I'm, I'm quite concerned about, um, that there are increasing concentrations of wealth and power and with concentrations of wealth come you know, changes in, in political power. Um, and um, what I get some encouragement from is that we continue to have a, a fairly dynamic, changing uh, set of winners and losers over time. Um, it's what Joseph Schumpeter called creative destruction. Um, most of these big companies that have you know, 70 80% market shares, you know, they're, they're like 10 years old or less. Yeah. They're not like they've been around for, for decades or centuries. And they could be displaced. I remember it wasn't that long ago that IBM was an unassailable monopoly. And then, and then Microsoft controlled Windows. And it's not that Microsoft lost control of desktop computers, but it became that a new platform emerged and it became irrelevant. So this, the Schumpeterian style of competition doesn't say you don't have any monopolies. What it says is that they can be overtaken by other monopolies. If we can preserve that kind of competition, um, then I think the consumers win and innovation win. But I would be very vigilant and watchful to make sure we do continue to have the threat of entry. Right now, Uber is having to fend off Lyft. I, I personally switch, switched over. It's a, it's a, I guess they don't have it in, in Britain, but in the United States, it's, it's another competing platform that's putting a little pressure on them. And, and I love to see that kind of competition and pressure.
I wonder whether this creative disruption, though, actually could have a very negative political and social impact because the incentive for government becomes like attract the big firms to you, yeah. you know, cut corporation tax, give yeah. access to power, yeah. you know, protect intellectual property in certain ways beyond the sort of global community, if you right. like. And we're seeing some of that quite, quite, quite yeah. clearly. Oh, no. So to stick with the Uber example, in, uh, in my hometown of Boston, Massachusetts, um, the taxi groups... Uh, convinced the government to put a special tax on ride-sharing services, and they took the money and they gave it to the taxi company. So there's a, there's a tendency, I think, for the government to say, hey, this creative destruction is a little too scary for us. Let's try and lock in the present system. But successful economies in the United States or anywhere have never thrived by freezing in place any given set of companies or systems. You've got to have that dynamic creative destruction. Ultimately, I think it's less risky to have the dynamism than to try to freeze in place systems, but there's a strong tendency for not just governments, but the incumbents that have often the best connections to try to slow down change. And some of the workers who say, hey, you mean I'm going to have to change jobs? I don't want to have to do that. I, I think, um, you know, that's, a, like I said, a mistaken strategy. We need to embrace the future and not try to protect the past from the future. Okay, great. Let's take another quick round of questions. Could we talk a bit about morality and human agency and what, and what you detect in your conversations with the technology companies? You, you talk about data-driven decision-making, but without human input. Pretty scary what happened here in London a few weeks ago and with the, the attack on Borough Market and the Uber. The d- dynamic pricing model sent the price of a, a, a getaway car effectively mm-hmm. soaring until a human being intervened. Mm-hmm. So is there enough moral awareness of the uh, consequences of some of this technology? I think there can be atrocious mistakes with these systems. They, they provide very, very powerful tools and, and new uh, options that people haven't worked out before. And so a lot of our, our social norms are based on you know, customs that we've learned that something just was very wrong, and over 50 or 100 years we say, oh, okay, we, we shouldn't have to do that. Now you get a very new landscape, and young entrepreneurs you know, make careless mistakes and I think that you know Facebook and the fake news is another great example of that I talked to the executives there and they're like well you know we're like selling pencils and you know it's not our job to decide whether someone writes bad words or or nice words with those you know that's that's not that's what they do we just we just sell pencils and I think they've they've rethought that and decided you know maybe we do have some responsibility to think about uh, how easily fake news spreads and we can put in things in place. Uh, So this is an evolving conversation. Um, Many of the algorithms that are used to make decisions um, end up turning out to be very biased because um, if you have an algorithm based on hiring people or who gets parole or um, who gets uh, credit based on historical data, well, if that historical data was based on biased humans that had implicit or explicit biases, then the machine is going to learn biases. It's the oldest rule uh, in computer science, garbage in, garbage out. Um, But let me end on a a somewhat hopeful note, which is that, well, I'm not sure it's hopeful, but a balanced note that, that, you know, humans have biases too, and the machines um, have the potential for continually improving. And um, I think we have to be of an understanding that that our goal can be perfection, but that's not what we have to expect right off the bat. What we should be expecting is trying to have a system that's better than human decision-making. And I think the potential ultimately is for the machines to have less bias than the humans have, to be better at at educating some of these moral decisions um, and doing them in a fair, objective way. 
when people hire right now, they often have a great deal of biases. Uh, a a machine-based system has the potential for eliminating some of those biases. So final, final question. Um, it seems that um, I, the conversation earlier on sort of touched on the need to sort of generate these sort of socially legitimate systems, institutions around which in which technology sits or what technology uh, relates to, so that can contend with some of these ethical and social dilemmas. Right. The problem with those processes is they're slow, and the technologies you're describing are, can be very fast. Yes. How do we, how do we bring, I think about a platform economy of buyers and sellers, how do we bring that together um, in a political public conversation that can make meaningful decisions that are quick enough before it's run away from the public? Well, I think part of the genius of capitalism, the free enterprise system, is that it does leverage the crowd to test lots and lots of different ideas. And um, in Silicon Valley, they talk about permissionless innovation. And I think that's still been the best, most successful model to, to try things. Then when things go wrong, you step in and address them, but not try to anticipate in advance all the possible way things can go wrong. If you do that, you end up becoming paralyzed. And so we want to be vigilant and ready to, to step in but we have these these different systems, and if you know if if somebody uh, sets up surge pricing in a way they shouldn't, you know you don't try to anticipate in advance all the possible ways to go wrong. You say, hey, wait a minute, that's really not the way we want to work things, and then you correct it, and you continually evolve and improve. And and some of the uh, entrepreneurs or organizations are going to get it wrong, and I think they're going to fall by the wayside. Others will get it right, and we'll say, hey, let's adopt more of that. But if we have a, a mostly decentralized, flexible rapidly evolving, dynamic approach to solving these problems, I think we're going to be more robust and be more likely to come to the right solutions than if we have a bunch of uh, experts sit down somewhere and, and plan out for everybody else what the optimal outcome is going to be. Right. Thank you. Well, fascinating uh, analysis. Um, as you may have been advised during the course of this talk on several occasions, you can buy the book today. <laughs> Dubai, it's absolutely fascinating. It's on the edge of understanding where we are and where we might head with regards to technology. But for now, thank you very much, Eric. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.